are here at 11FS headquarters in London. We work for episode 22 of Blockchain Insider. Today we bring you Bitcoin flirts with $10,000 per coin. The Department of Justice cracks down on ICOs. And we recorded a roundtable from RegTech Rising and spoke to the CFTC Commissioner Brian Quintes in an interview. Before we get started, today's episode of Blockchain Insider is brought to you by Corda. Corda is an open source blockchain platform that allows businesses to transact directly in strict privacy using smart contracts. Corda enables complex transactions using real assets and legally binding agreements without the need of a trusted intermediary. Corda is the result of a collaborative effort led by R3 in collaboration with over 160 of the world's largest banks and technology partners. It's ready to build on today. The financial community is deploying Corda to manage their agreements and move assets globally. Now you can transform your business ecosystem with a platform selected by the world's largest institutions to build their future on, Corda. Go to Corda.net to learn more. And now, on with the news. Back for the news once again, it's Colin G. Platt, also known as GSAS. Is the GSAS over 9,000, Colin, like the Bitcoin price? Oh, man, uh, it's definitely the Vegeta memes. <laughs> uh, power level 9,000, for sure, definitely getting to 10,000. Wow, it, definitely for sure getting to 10,000 on the SAS. But what about the Bitcoin price? Because we have business as usual. Bitcoin's up to another high. And TechCrunch is reporting on this. We've had Bloomberg, The Guardian, The Telegraph. You can't move for people talking about Bitcoin being over 9,000. So uh, what's happening, Colin, uh, other than the obvious? Oh, well, the obvious would be a whole lot of geeks buying Ferraris and Lamborghinis, right? Um, well, I mean... We've been watching this Bitcoin price rising, and it kind of feels like the the whole you're, we're going to win so much, you're going to get sick of winning. Um, I, I think there are a lot of people that uh, have gotten sick of this story of how high this is going. It's definitely exciting. Um, it's not only Bitcoin that's going to all times highs. We're seeing Ethereum. I think was was above five hundred dollars. Of course, this thing started at what fifty cents in two thousand fourteen. So that that's quite a price rise as well. Um, it all seems to be linked with a, a couple of different things going on. Uh, first is it seemed like um, when we were talking about SegWit 2 in the last couple of shows, we talked about how that ultimately fell apart and didn't go through. Uh, there seems to be a lot of relief around that, that there are uh, at least less pieces of drama in the news. And uh, it seems like we're getting more and more people from outside looking in. Um, I also heard some interesting speculation that when this Bitcoin cash came out, and obviously the price of that is also around all time highs. Um, because everything seems to be nowadays. Um, a lot of people actually sold those off to buy more Bitcoin, and then they they hid those away so they won't be touched. Um, more buyers than sellers, I guess, is, is the reason for all of this. Classic market dynamics and lots of uh, buyers coming into the market. Uh, I know that uh, Chris Baniski, uh, who's a friend of the show, was on Bloomberg Radio recently and quoted as saying that uh, he's, uh, he's looked at numbers that suggest 500,000 uh, wallets are being opened per day. Now, that might not necessarily be uh, individual customers coming into the market, but that's certainly significant. Uh, and there's been the long-held view that institutional investors are coming into the space. And I've seen a number of conflicting charts this week. Some of the chart art I've seen has been phenomenal. One comparing uh, all, the all-time historic bubbles. Uh, I think it was on IIII.com uh, where I saw this one. And the all-time historic bubbles, they had uh, kind of the railway boom and they had uh, the dot-com boom and, and all of these sorts of things uh, and they had the tulip bubble and bitcoin was tracing almost perfectly with the tulip bubble and it's it's one of the the greatest booms in our lifetime but then by the same token uh, you found something from uh, somebody on twitter colin i believe um and you got to be 
careful how you pronounce this guy's name. Could you talk us through that chart? Uh, I, I'm going to go ahead and try this one. So um, a, a very, very good um, cryptocurrency analysis uh, from Mr. Tor Meister. I hope that's how I say it. Um, from the Netherlands, obviously, with a name like that. Uh, he put this together in 2014, where he was talking about uh, the prices going against uh, a logarithmic or a nonlinear regression. And he found uh, at that time in 2014, he predicted a price on the 22nd of November, so about a week ago when we're recording this, 10,000 per Bitcoin. So I'd say that's pretty damn good. Um, so if we fast forward, his prediction is we hit 100,000 in 2021. So I think uh, set your calendars for the 16th of July, 2021. We'll be on or around it according to this chart if we follow this line. Uh, interesting thing out there, obviously link uh, in the notes. Uh, go follow him uh, if you're interested in where the prices can go because he talks about this a lot. And I think uh, Chris has been very complimentary of his work as well. Yeah, there are some fantastic Twitter accounts out there, and he's one of those. Uh, But we can't just get too distracted by Bitcoin. As you said, Ethereum's hit all-time highs, and there was a story on Zero Hedge where part of the reason Ethereum might have sold to a record high is the South Korean regulator has confirmed no plan to regulate cryptos. There's a big South Korea story here. Yeah, so South Korea is a really interesting market. It seems like um, the torch has almost passed completely between China being the center of Bitcoin trading uh, up until the beginning of this year, when the regulators came in and clamped down a lot of a lot of uh, the ICOs and then on some of the exchanges. Um, all of that seems to have moved initially to Japan and then very quickly into South Korea. South Korea has an extraordinarily large capital market uh, for the size of the country, and um, it now has the third largest trading pair for Bitcoin um, out of a South Korean exchange. Now, um, one of the big questions there was what the regulators were going to do specifically around ICOs. Was it going to follow the Chinese model or would it be something different, um, more along the lines of perhaps a Singapore model? Um, ultimately, they came out and said, right now, we're not going to do anything about it. We're going to wait and see. Uh, a lot of relief inside of uh, Ethereum, obviously being the host of a lot of these ICOs, or at least a conduit um, to get money into them. Super interesting perspective that they'd actually been quite harsh on ICOs, but on the rest of the crypto market, very open. And then the demand that's in that market that swung in afterwards has, has been really significant. But as a result of all of this demand, Colin, and uh, also the crazy prices, everybody's now getting their predictions in for what happens next. And of course, there's a baseball great called Jose Canseco, who may have been my favorite, who predicted um, that (laughs) this was just about a week ago. He predicted that Bitcoin would hit $10,000 by 2018. He might end up being right early, Colin. Yeah, I mean, he made a he made a, a prediction a few years ago about gold uh, going up to fifteen hundred. I think it promptly crashed about nine hundred. Um, so he doesn't have the greatest track record. But I have to say, if um, if we get there in the next couple of days, and I think we're as we're recording this, we're pretty much at that level. Um, so close enough that I'd say I'd give it to him. Um, he's, the, my best part of his prediction was he said uh, by twenty eighteen, blockchain uh, the technology behind Bitcoin will be understood by everyone, including morons. So I mean, I've got a chance of hopefully understanding this stuff next year. Um, <laughs> he's also said <laughs> that uh, Satoshi Satoshi Nakamoto, obviously, uh, who created uh, Bitcoin, the, the shadowy uh, anonymous figure, shadowy I don't know, anonymous at least, um, will be the world leader of some digital economic union by 2020 so we got that to look forward to i I for one welcome the digital economic union overlords and hope that uh, within this new nation state we get to function in a crypto utopia 
I, I wonder if they'll like baseball, though. Well, and if they'll collect baseball cards. And see, that's probably where it all came from, that baseball card trading knowledge. Uh, so, Colin, uh, I'm going to move us to the next story because uh, there's one that I think a lot of people will have missed on Coindesk, which says, who needs a centralized securities depository or a CSD? Uh, British company Navura are going to issue the first regulated Ether-denominated bond. Uh, what's happening here? Yeah, so uh, let's walk this back. What is a CSD or a central securities depository, right? So um, right now, if um, if a company like uh, Tesco or General Electric decides they want to issue a bond, um, essentially a, a piece of debt saying that if you give us a million dollars today, we'll pay you back a million dollars plus 3% annually. And here's a security that actually moves around the market. Um, these markets are actually globally much larger than the stock markets that people are probably more familiar with, like Apple shares. There are a bunch of paperwork and some electronic records that are held at places um, around the world, Euroclear being the largest, um, called central securities depositories. Um, they ultimately track which bank is holding and owning which of these securities on behalf of their clients. And that could be at first order, second order, third order, or maybe further. Um, so they're very central to how the markets actually work. Um, Nivora, this startup, um, very interesting company to, worth having a look at, has put out a test. Um, they've been through the, the FCA uh, sandbox and they said, let's try to actually issue a bond without that CSD because we have a blockchain that can perform a lot of the functions that a CSD offers, and we can come straight to the market and we can say, here's a here's a smart contract, and in the future, this smart contract shows you, and you can look inside this box that I will pay you back money, and this is how it will work. Um, they've done everything without trying to complicate it of saying, I want to issue it in pounds or dollars, and they just said, let's put it in Ether, let's put it in Ethereum blockchain, but it's in a live blockchain, and to my understanding, uh, it should function to offer a lot of these products. It's obviously a demo at this point, um, but it does show us kind of what the world could look like. It's live and it's real. So I think demos possibly misleading. It's limited. In other words, there's not a lot of these being offered to the mass market. Um, but this is a real bond uh, that was regulated on a live platform with real value being transacted, which I think is important. Uh, and what's interesting here is that, that it was actually a London-based luxury retail start, uh, startup called LuxDeco. And uh, the, the idea was raising capital for short-term seasonal demand. And this idea of a micro a bond this way of i'm going to raise some capital but just a small amount has been very difficult for um financial markets in the past because if you're going to raise a bond i mean you're starting at 50 million dollars and, and looking upwards really otherwise you're in what's called micro bonds and at which point for the financial services industry with all of its costs and its legacy csds and um legacy organizations and people and process and mindset uh, that that all adds cost which makes it uneconomical to do such a small uh bond, which means small businesses are missing out on funding. Small businesses are missing out on working capital that could otherwise be offered. And so it's interesting that uh, the technology allowed them to solve a business problem. That's that's what I really like about this. And then secondly, um, uh, Avtar Sarah, who's the CEO, said um, what they're showing is you can use open public infrastructure for regulated financial instruments. This regulated financial instrument happens to be uh, denominated as a security. So there's all this talk about what are the SEC going to do um, are you safe issuing securities on a on a public permissionless blockchain? 
yes, yes, it can be done. But Navura have done their homework. Uh, they were part of JP Morgan's in-residence program. They worked with law firm Allen and Overy um, and credit rating firm Moody's actually priced the instrument as well. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that went into to making this make sense. It wasn't just, hey, let's put it out there and we don't believe in working with anybody else. They've definitely changed the model, but they've definitely engaged with uh, some of the some of the traditional organizations as well and, and re-architected the model to a certain degree. Next story, Colin. Uh, the Department of Justice are looking to crack down on rogue ICOs and make an example in their first case to act as a warning for others. Wow, this just sounds like something that's... Uh, I'm, I'm picturing comic book things happening here. Um, so this comes from Business Insider um, and the US Department of Justice are reportedly considering legal action against some of these rogue ICOs. And let's face it, there are plenty of rogue ICOs out there. Um, and it, from this article, it's believed that the Department of Justice will pick a case that's pure fraud or blatant wanton violation of security laws um, rather than a situation that may be closer to call. So there's, there's a few things in here, Colin. Um, there's plenty of rogue ICOs out there. I, I was really wondering what rogue ICOs were going to be. Were they like rogue traders inside of ICOs or are the, the ICOs doing the rogue trading on their own? I always thought these smart contracts couldn't go rogue and that's why we were trying to use them. Um, no, I mean... No, we, surely we, it's some sort of lovable rogue like Vitalik holding <laughs> a Lamborghini, passing it to you in angel robes. Uh, speaking of rogue ICOs and Vitalik, did you see the one of... Um, fit Vitalik, people raising money to help Vitalik get in shape because obviously he's lost too much weight. <laughs> um, <laughs> buff Buterin. <laughs> yeah, Buff Buterin. Um, I mean, we've talked about ICOs a lot in this show. We had Stephen Paley in here who had um, very strong words for uh, ICOs, including Tezos, in what might not be necessarily um, the best way to do it. Obviously, there's some cases where um, people aren't even trying to go out and raise money. Um, they're just going out. We talked about one on, on the show last week, uh, $375,000 disappeared because somebody marketed an ICO, took the money and ran. Um, there are serious uh, consequences that are coming down the pipelines. And this is just the first really loud warning sign after the SEC has said, right, these things are possibly securities and we're going to come after you. Um, and now the DOJ, who is ultimately the one uh, that can enforce those things and take people to court, is saying lots of these things are pure fraud. We're going to put together some some group that is looking at these things, is trying to figure out what's going on, where this money is coming from, where it goes. They have all kinds of tools at their disposal, and they happen to have uh, these fantastic blockchains that are completely open and show all of the transaction histories, including that money flowing out and going into Coinbase and then disappearing into the ether. Uh, no pun intended. But it's uh, it's something that people who are putting these things out or potentially putting them out or thinking about investing or advising um, really need to consider, are they working with companies that they would work with if the word blockchain wasn't involved? Are these people they'd be working with if the word blockchain and cryptocurrency wasn't involved? And I think in a lot of cases, People are just there because they see it's a it's an easy way to make a quick buck. And that's exactly the, the risk, isn't it? And don't do it if you're just trying to make a quick buck. Don't be an asshole. Just if you're going to do this, Navura have shown that you can issue registered securities in a regulated way and you can do these things properly and you can build a, a business that solves a problem for people in the market. This, this can be done. There was another article I saw just this morning uh, on Coindesk where it says an ex-SEC lawyer predicts an assembly line for for ICO enforcement. And uh, this is according to Nicholas Morgan, who was a former lawyer, and sort of some interesting points here. Um, there's a number of different direct 
directions in which uh, things are evolving. Um, and you might be uh, you might be right that your ICO is not a security, and some judge at the end of the day may agree with you. But is it worth the expense and distraction to get that answer from a judge? Um, it's probably a better course of action if you're anywhere close to being a security to just assume that it is and go forward with that presumption in mind. Um, and also talks about like uh, that this is probably going to get brought up in a court somewhere it might be tezos in san francisco that's the first um and you know, regulators don't want to come out and have to litigate themselves but some action is going to happen somewhere and some judgment is, is going to come in so it's uh, it's kind of in the interests of the industry to have um marketplaces or ways of upvoting and downvoting and finding out the answer to things that might be better than this colin uh gsas what are you upvoting this week uh, what am I upvoting this week? That's a good question. Bitcoin prices. Yeah, I'm going to upvote uh, Vitalik buffering, like buff pictures of Vitalik. We've just been making me chuckle endlessly. Go on, Vitalik. You can get that protein powder in. Um, so that's what we'd be upvoting. But if you are looking at the ICO space and you want to know what's happening, uh, there's always Zilla. Uh, Zilla is an ICO marketplace app, kind of like a mix between Amazon and Reddit for ICOs. You can browse those ICOs and upvote or downvote them so that good ones rise to the top. And if you like an ICO, you'll be able to participate using various tokens and credit card with one click. Uh, Zilla are a sponsor of uh, Blockchain Insider, so thank you very much to them. And you can pre-register for the limited Zilla beta app at zla.io forward slash bi. Um, Colin, next story is a non-financial story. In Cointelegraph, there's a blockchain-based air travel to New Zealand. And I don't think this is actually the air travel itself. Um, this is more about the uh, the baggage, bringing smoothness to the security of baggage, ticketing, and other airline procedures. You're going through some airports in the near future, sir. You could probably use that. I, I, I really hope not. I'm just imagining how bad those low-cost airlines are like Ryanair with your bags. Imagine if a smart contract was enforcing that and then taking all your money out of your wallet or something. <laughs> Um, so this is an interesting story that um, Air New Zealand has partnered up with a nonprofit startup, Winding Tree, who actually previously had worked um, with other airline groups such as Lufthansa, and looking at how they can fit these all in. Um, I, again, I mean, this is one of those ones I'd, I'd like to see what comes out of this. Um, Forbes is right that non-financials are coming. Is this the non-financial startup uh, in blockchain? I don't know if this will change the world uh, and change the travel industry. Um, we've heard some grandiose things from people about blockchain and travel. Um, we'll see. I'm, I'm definitely not traveling around the world to see what's inside the blocks. <laughs> well, you, some people really want to know what's inside those blocks, Colin. This kind of reminds me of a story from we covered from uh, AXA about uh, mid-September time when they launched an app called Fizzy. Um, Fizzy was the app where you kind of uh, input your details of a flight you were going on. And if your flight was more than two hours late, you got reimbursed immediately. And the idea was that like they record the purchase on the Ethereum blockchain. They record the insurance contract on the Ethereum blockchain. They then take a data feed of global air traffic so if there's a delay of more than two hours the compensation is triggered automatically and access actually delegated the compensation decision to the independent network which i thought was a, a really interesting way of thinking about things um, and does that bring more trust does it take does it mean lower cost for those organizations uh interesting interesting thing to think about so as you're traveling around i'm sure you'll be thinking about fizzy and and not dealing with with airport security although i'm sure you'll probably have to deal with uh getting past those those idiots in airport security i i think i probably will and i definitely hope that uh they have more leeway as i'm traveling with an eight month year old than a smart contract with well i don't know if they can handle all that gsas that's the problem <laughs> 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 
<laughs> well, I'll just have to fork them then. Yeah, fork them and then um, tell them to rate you on zla.io forward slash bi, that's for sure. Um, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, one on TechCrunch, how to talk about cryptocurrency at the dinner table. This is a, a nice festive explainer for your parents of how cryptocurrency works. And it's essentially one big gamble, according to this story. Um, I think it's a vastly oversimplified story, but interesting that TechCrunch felt the need to put this article out right before um, the Thanksgiving holiday in the US, which I know has now passed and we hope you all had a, a fantastic Thanksgiving. Um, and last but not least, uh, Ripple does a thing. I think we need a Ripple does a thing jingle. These guys are up to a lot. Um, and uh, from ripple.com, they're now live with uh, Axis Bank, Rab Bank, and Standard Chartered. All right, thank you, Colin. Uh, now let's head to the roundtable we did at RegTech Rising. So we are here once again with the Q&A uh, on all things blockchain, tokens, token sales, and ICOs that we recorded live at the RegTech Rising on the 1st of November. And I always had the good fortune of being joined by a superstar cast, including Ruth Wandoffer, the global head of regulatory and market strategy at Citibank, Lawrence Wintermeyer, who just left the position of CEO of Innovate Finance, Oliver Oram, who's from Chainvine, and Jeff Banman of Banman Advisory and formerly the CFTC. We talked through ICOs and token sales, and I'd noted that we've seen a number of regulators such as the FCA, BaFin, CFTC, wherever you are in the world, talk about what are token sales and what are the risks. So I wanted to know, what is the market? What is a token sale? Can it be done well? Can regular people buy these tokens? Why would they want to? And what are the risks? And lastly, what's going to happen next? So starting with what are ICOs? I think we have three basic questions when we're thinking about an ICO from the perspective of the company issuing a token. Firstly, who are the people giving me, the token issuer, money? And how do I find out who they are? Secondly, given the international and borderless nature of ICOs and token sales, how do I know which jurisdiction, country, or regulator I'm subject to? And thirdly, what am I actually giving somebody in return for that money that they've given me? Is it the equivalent of a concert ticket? Is it something that you can exchange for something in the future? Or is it the equivalent of shares in a company? Is it actual shares in a company? Here's Ruth. We are still at a very immature stage of all of this explosion of creativity and also negative creativity in some examples. I think these are actually the sort of three major questions at a principal level that one should ask before one even goes about to create an ICO. And I've seen companies that are creating ICOs for very specific purposes within a closed ecosystem to actually help their own business develop and not only to raise capital or funds, but also to get more access to data and get sort of the buyer ecosystem into it and give them sort of discounts on future services that are being developed uh, by virtue of, of this funding, which is very different to some of the, those absolute open, uncapped, uh, sort of out of Switzerland foundational type run uh, ICOs, which are really like, okay, we're working on something and it's not there yet, but it will be there and making various amounts of promises based on one white paper. And then ultimately this may turn out to be the best thing since sliced bread or it may not. To Ruth's point, it may be the best thing since sliced bread. So why do we care? Why does it matter at all? Well, this is a radically new way of allowing firms to raise funding. And what we're already seeing is the impact this is having on the venture capital space. But we might already have a precedent here. And Oliver made a good example. The VCs are certainly being disrupted, but we've forgotten about what disrupted um, 
many people in the last 10 years, which was peer-to-peer lending and uh, crowdfunding. These guys were the disruptors, and now they're being completely disrupted. So the fear is there. I did a speech for a, a, a quite a well-known company. I've never seen so many faces go pale and so, 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 so much speed of time when I said, um, Filecoin raised 200 million in one hour. And they were like, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, that, that's an ICO for you. And I said, yes, it, it is insane. But, um, you know, this is what we're looking at. I would say the only one left standing at the moment of the big raises was Filecoin. Coinlist, uh, and I know Paul Menchoff over in New York, helped them actually do this properly. They went through a proper KYC, AML, and they made sure accredited investors were in. And this was the proper way to do it, and this is the future of it. I was actually flown to Africa two weeks ago to meet the Central Bank of Tanzania. Um, they said, how do we regulate Bitcoin? And I said, you can't. I said, you can, you can have oversight. You can regulate the use of it. They said, but we've got, a, we've got a website here selling Bitcoin to Tanzanian citizens and cryptocurrencies. I said, shut down the website then. So far, this just looks like a great innovative way for firms to raise capital. So are there any potential dangers? Over to Jeff. There are certain fraudulent types of uh, practices and, and, and actors. And, you know, I'd say often the, the regulators, uh, you know, are fulfilling their duty to the public to ban certain, you know, activities individuals and, practice, and yeah. activities. And, you know, I, w- I would not put these practices in that category as generally practiced. There are obviously some fraudsters out there. But, I, you know, I do, do think there are cases where you do need to ban activities outright. So there have definitely been scams where somebody has imitated being a token seller or imitating the ICO itself. Then you or I would lose our money by buying non-existent tokens or just by giving people money who never had tokens in the first place. Did you see the scam on Kitcoin? So basically what they did was they changed the URL and they lost $20,000 like boom because somebody thought this was an initial coin offering and they went to the wrong site and the guy put his own wallet address there and they had but they caught it quick i get i give them credit they caught it quick but this is just how simple it is to steal money from someone so if we're going to make this space make sense what are the actual challenges if we're going to have token sales and icos and we want to do this right what are the issues we need to think about what about uri retail clients can we buy into an ico what would be the solutions if we did lawrence had some thoughts you know, one of the biggest issues you you see with Bitcoin uh, is the number of retail participants in 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 the market in in what looks like a speculative market, and and th- this is in fact you, you know a great part of the problem I think that we're facing with cryptocurrencies. But that's the issue, right? I mean, you mentioned it earlier, Lawrence. Bitcoin is something that is accessible to anyone to invest in, and retail investors are making use of that, and they have invested in ICOs, and I think it's a sort of transparency education protection piece because of course in this virtual world where you you don't have an internet firewall coming down saying dear retail investor you cannot participate in this ICO that's where you fall short of those control mechanisms so it's an education piece because I agree um, these are complex things that even those doing the ICOs they don't even know themselves what's going to happen with them. Ruth makes a great point about it being really about education so retail investors you and me today can invest in ICOs but they should probably be more happening around that education. But what about the jurisdiction? With so many different national approaches to cryptocurrencies and ICOs, what role does jurisdiction play? Jurisdiction 
is uh, an extremely hard and not easily solvable problem for many ICO companies. So if I create an ICO today in London, um, if an American investor buys some of my offering, I am going to be in trouble if the SEC doesn't like what I'm selling. As you pointed out, some jurisdictions have banned the, the ICOs altogether, at least for now, like, you know, like China and South Korea. Um, you know, Japan will be interesting to see where they go because they are regulating just the, the cryptocurrency exchanges and they're, you know, monitoring the, this. Technology gives us the speed to, um, to invest extremely quickly. Um, RegTech comes into play here because what, what, um, what is not going on at the moment is correct KYC and AML. What I like about one of the most successful ICOs, so somebody asked me like, the other day, um, which, what, how many ICOs have you successfully um, advised for? And I said, if anyone says to a successful ICO advisor, run for the hills, um, because there aren't any. And, and it's just a lie. There's people who understand technology and there's people who don't. Yeah, I think that the big theme, uh, and we discussed it both at Cybos and this morning, is actually data um, and the exponentially increasing amount of unstructured data that people really can't get their heads around. And now we have very strict regulatory requirements uh, on the general data protection regulation, GDPR, PSD2, MIFID, whatever it may be, um, to actually understand the data in terms of compliance, understand what data should be held, what data should be deleted, but also ultimately make sense of the data in terms of taking the right business decision. And all of these uh, themes like re-engineering your business model become more relevant, profitable, uh, even the definition of profit and how you rate yourself are all linked to understanding the data. And unfortunately, uh, the industry is only coming around to that challenge now. Um, it's something that should have been tackled in 2008, 2009, really. Um, but I think as we now all agree, data is the piece that will unlock the value. And we should be just getting on with it. So let's say you're going to issue your token. You've thought through those challenges and those three questions about the identity, the jurisdiction and the nature of the token. What opportunities are in front of you? Why would you even want to issue one of these tokens in the first place? I mean, it's been more of an evolution, really a revolution. These, these things, you know, e even six months ago, we would have barely been starting to talk about a year ago. No one was, was talking about these things. So th they're, I'd say, really a, a you know, radically transformative new tool to democratize uh, the access of, of individuals uh, as, as well as institutions to invest in new technology ideas and new businesses at a much earlier state. You know, the, these have the potential to democratize access, and it's sort of the third, you know, radical, transformative, decentralized, you know, invention or, or enhancement, you know, starting with the, the Bitcoin white paper and then the Bitcoin blockchain and, and, and now this. And I think for anyone designing an ICO, having those principles in your head before you even go about thinking about a white paper, what is actually your objective? Uh, we've seen on and on again with the first ICOs that some companies raised money that was so disproportionately in excess to anything that they could ever deliver in their lifespan um, that it, it tells you that ultimately this will not be a, a payback for investors. This will not be an equity game. This will not be really an investment opportunity. And therefore, the retail side of these investors that are, of course, more vulnerable are, are going to suffer. And we are starting to see that people now, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Oliver, I mean, serious companies that have been existing for a long time are looking at that opportunity because indeed 
It offers alternatives to venture capital, which in some instances works well, in some instances doesn't. It offers alternative to, to bank loans and other options. So I think it is a great opportunity to create this as a new way of raising money, but it is in its infancy and it will require those principles to be thought through from the beginning. It's interesting. Yeah, the, uh, you know, there, there's a bit of irony uh, in the sense that, you know, kind of the, the VC com venture capital community that's been, you know, preaching disruption, particularly in technology, you know, for years, if not decades, is itself getting disrupted. That, you know, the, the founders of these companies are able to bypass the traditional venture capitalists. You know, I was out on uh, the, the west coast of the, of the U.S. Uh, last week, you know, sort of really heard a, a mix of views of, about this. I'd say, at, you know, at one extreme were, were the people saying, you know, look, the, these founders, they're, they're young, they don't know what they're doing, they need our, our guidance, they really can't handle all this newfound wealth themselves without our, our guidance. But, you know, I'd, I'd say in fairness, I mean, the VCs, you know, many of them do add a lot of value, and I'm already starting to see adaptation that some of the kind of some of the latest uh, coin offerings, you know, some of the kind of marquee brand name VCs are, you know, they're involved in the pre-sale. Part of the sales pitch is so-and-so VC is already part of our ICO. They participated. They're on our advisory board. So, you know, the VCs are getting disrupted, but they are also adapting. So, you know, it's, it's a fascinating process to watch. So, you know, just within the last couple of weeks, I've, I've heard of, of tools and, and initiatives that uh, people in the industry are developing on their own to develop kind of greater transparency, uh, you know, almost analogous to kind of credit rating tools that will actually track, you know, all these different ICOs that will sort of track the white papers, have they hit the milestones, so that the, there will be the development of tools that will help, you know, investors kind of monitor the, the credibility and the progress and, and what they're delivering and, and, and give people tools to make com comparisons. So just like those tools exist, you know, Morningstar ratings or, or credit rating agencies, you know, I think part of the cycle of innovation in, in this industry will be the development of other tools that will actually give greater transparency and credibility to help investors in evaluating those. This is really significant. To have somebody who's worked in regulation and been looking at financial markets for their whole life say, basically, this could fundamentally change the way all firms raise capital and offer real opportunities to both retail and wholesale investors. That's really significant. So what's stopping everybody from getting involved and what does the regulatory landscape look like? Well, certainly the SEC had weighed in. Then actually they did it in a way where, you know, the first time they said, we're not going to punish anybody. Uh, we're just going to explain, here's what the rules are to put the market on notice. So now if I'm doing an ICO and it has the, the attributes of a security, I know that at least if I want to offer it to U.S. persons, I have to offer it under one of the many different ways there are for offering securities to U.S. investors. So you had asked me to kind of characterize, uh, you know, where the U.S. is. And, you know, I think that the, the U.S. has been, I think, really striking an, an effective job, you know, looking at each of the individual regulators at, you know, striking a balance. So Jeff paints an interesting picture of a market with opportunity, with regulators being thoughtful, but certainly drawing lines in the sand about what you can and can't do. So where do we go from here? Should ICOs and token sales really be supported and opened up as an opportunity? And if so, how would we do that? What do we do next?
you know, sometimes for a regulator, just having a bit of wait and see promotes innovation. You know, you don't want to rush in and just kind of make proclamations too quickly, either to ban it or classify it. You know, it may take time. Yeah, and I think we do start seeing that those ICOs that want to be successful, truly successful, are actually taking that best practice approach and are taking those three, four rules, the investor protection principles very seriously, skin in the game, cap on, on the actual value, not like, you know, any money in the world can, can fund us forever uh, for the next hundred years. So I think that's what we're starting to see emerge slowly as a best practice because the race is really on. I mean, we just talked about the speed by which people are being disrupted and reinvent themselves and re-disrupt others. Um, I do think that in the ICO space, we see that really exponentially where the best practice theme comes forward, where the regulators in the US have taken a very pragmatic approach. And I think where we see, we will be seeing more regulators around the world taking a similar approach and that may be the one piece that will help us with some regulatory harmonization around the world because we thought it would be KYC AML, we thought it would be maybe distributed ledger because it's also new and completely borderless but I think ICOs as an investor protection theme is probably the most political one that the let's say developed regulatory countries are going to align on. Yeah, I think regulators just have to be mindful that because of this technology uh, explosion and the virtual nature of it, the old, let's say, boundaries of supervision, physical checks, um, and also like, you know, putting someone physically in jail if things go wrong. Um, I think these things don't really work anymore uh, in the same way. So it's much better to take an open approach on the right principles, which actually we do have in existing laws, and let the industry do that best practice play. And actually, as you just mentioned, Jeff, let that ecosystem around new services to protect and channel and do the right thing about it evolve with it which is what's happening and don't be so non-credible as to just ban things that you could never control in any way even if you banned it I mean nothing's going to happen right so I think it is it's more the sort of sensible approach of do what you can but do it according to the right principles which we do actually see in the regulations present today I think in in line uh, with I know Simon the work that you're doing and and you know putting together a paper for HMT uh, and the government here in the UK Uh, I think the best opportunity you have is to certainly openly look at and embrace the knowledge, but to try to get as many of the participants into a system of self-governance or standards uh, that you think best meets the end user. And in this case, the end user is the consumer. So I have no problem with consumers participating in ICOs, but in the you know, in the ecosystem and the life cycle of development, we need professionals to lay down some standards and, and some risk measures. Um, you know, look at here in the UK, as in the US, things like CFD platforms, um, spread trading are really big. They don't attract a large proportion of the public population. Sure, we need to make ICOs available to the public, but only once we've got some sort of voluntary code of standards and we've at least defined what's in the system Okay, so there you have it. I think a super interesting discussion. And I think there is a need for 
standards and best practices. And there are a number of bodies like Accord in the USA and then SAFT that that has started to happen, uh, Token and Awareness that William Moyergal is working on, and many others around the world like Crypto Valley, starting to make real headway in understanding how do they make the space safe for investors. But I think we need to see a lot more. I'm looking for that happening in the coming weeks and months. But what about you? What do you think about token sales? What do you think about this? Would you be would you go and buy a token today? Do you know how to buy a token? Do you feel safe if you were to buy one of these tokens or ICOs? Get in touch with us at Bchain Insider on Twitter or podcasts at 11fs.com and let us know what you think. Thank you very much to Lawrence, Ruth, Jeff and Oliver for being with us on Blockchain Insider. For a broader perspective, I also spoke to the commissioner at the CFTC, Brian Quintens, over to that interview. Welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor from 11FS, and today I am delighted to speak with Commissioner Brian Quintens from the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, or the CFTC, the US regulator that oversees commodity futures, options, and the swaps industry. Brian, Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be here. It's great to be with you. Great to be in London. It's really nice to have you on the show, I think, because the CFTC has been doing a lot lately in in regulation, innovation, fintech, as well as the subject of blockchain. But let's step back a second and just talk about the CFTC. What is it and what do you actually do? I think the the way to picture it is to think of it as the derivatives regulator. Um, if if any of your listeners ever saw the movie Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy. A classic. And the, the, the cornering of the frozen concentrated orange juice market, that was really our space. You know, the futures products that uh, evolved from the agricultural sector. Uh, very quickly after that, futures products came to be on financial futures, uh, treasuries, stock indexes, and now we've moved beyond that into swaps products. So, you know, very sophisticated financial instruments. Wow. You got, uh, it's quite a size of an industry, right? It's pretty large and uh, there's a whole bunch of different types of contracts in there. How did you find yourself getting to the CFTC? Because previously you were at, uh, was it uh, Seculum Capital Management? Is Seculum, that? right. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, I said it right. I'm feeling good. That's right. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an ancient Roman word that means uh, a long life and is how they define the cyclicality of their civilization. So I thought that was an interesting word for, a, for an investment firm. But uh, thank you. Did your research. Um, so so I, I had moved from public policy and actually working on Capitol Hill uh, in the House of Representatives uh, into finance and worked at a small hedge fund that focused on the banking sector during the financial crisis. And then following that, formed my own investment firm that was actually registered with the CFTC uh, as a commodity pool operator because it used financial uh, futures products for uh, equity exposure. And, you know, throughout all three of those different experiences, you know, the public policy aspect, I think, is self-evident in terms of what the CFTC does in my role as a regulator. Um, But understanding the banking sector, understanding their balance sheets and reading their income statements, understanding how they take risk through my role as an equity analyst at a hedge fund, and then moving beyond that to the registration requirements of investment firms with the CFTC. Uh, All three of those, I think, give me a fairly clear picture of what we do. Yeah, I think it's a heck of a journey. What have been your 
insights? What have you learned? Because what a time to do it, you know, sort of during and then after the financial crisis. You probably had a front row seat to some interesting things happening. Well, that's exactly right. I think that there are a few things there. One, one is, is how quickly technology changes and how flexible or inflexible regulation can be. Uh, I think public policy is a very flexible tool. But the more prescriptive it is, the less it allows for financial innovation. Uh, In fact, one of our goals at the CFTC is to take our regulations kind of from the fax machine era Mm -hmm. and put them into the virtual reality world of today. We just removed a provision in our regulations that required reports to be filed by fax machine. Actually, so so you know the more prescriptive we are in our rules, you know the less we're allowing for innovation and innovative thinking. And I think that's a difficult balance because you're always trying to make sure that the rules are there to protect the wider economy, to protect uh, investors, to protect everybody involved in in the financial system. But at the same time, like you say, those small details can sometimes prevent you. How do you balance those two things? Because new things come along all the time that look a lot like innovation that have risks that we haven't understood. Are you seeing more of a shift from sort of letter to principle-based? So are we moving into that principles-based space? Or? I th- that's a great question. I think, I think the CFTC has always tried to be a more principles-based regulator. Uh, I think the financial crisis exposed some flaws in that, but I think that, tr- that in order to do our job the best, we should maintain a principles-based approach. And really, to me, that involves understanding the incentives of firms that are out there and the products that they're trading uh, and the risks that they want to take. I think one of the things that, that we've been looking at and that I would like to look at through my commissionership are the true risks in the algorithmic trading environment and the modern trading environment that we have today. And I think you have to understand the incentives of firms when doing that. I don't think any firm wants to have its algos act in a way it doesn't understand and go out and lose $400 million in a matter of seconds in the market. So to some degree, incentives are aligned there to solve the same problems. Interesting. Where are the incentives not aligned that we need actual regulation to come in and address? A super interesting perspective on regulation is actually a lot of the time we do want the same things, but we end up sitting across the table adversarially as as kind of a regulator and financial institution. And there is just this default to being adversarial that isn't necessary all the time. Well, I I kind of view the analogy not as us playing on a different team as the industry, but us being the referee of the game, letting the marketplace decide who wins and making sure that the referee is calling the game fairly so that you're not uh, allowing for poor play to dictate the outcome but that you're allowing for fair play to dictate the winners and the losers and in advance. where possible introducing video and different exactly. types of cameras. So if there's yeah. a flag on the play, hey, you can see where it came from. That's right. right. Instant review. You know, technology of regulators needs to evolve with the technology of the market. Which is actually something I wanted to get onto. Innovating in how we regulate seems mm-hmm. to be a theme at the moment. I know you guys launched uh, Lab CFTC. Uh, Jeff Bandman's a friend of the show, and I know was quite involved with that. Talk to me about what that is and and talk to me about what you see as the opportunities to innovate and how we regulate. I know you've also mentioned algo trading. Can you make that more concrete and and give me some examples of of changing the way we might have done something to the way we we could do something in the future? Sure. Well, I think think Lab CFTC is our general approach and Chairman Giancarlo's approach to trying to stay on top of regulation in terms of how it affects technology and how technology can affect Uh, our ability to properly regulate. We need to have access and knowledge of all of the technological tools that are out there in order to make sure that we're doing 
the most efficient job we can with the limited resources that we have. Uh, so this is really right now a dialogue process. I think there's tremendous opportunity for the agency itself to take advantage of resources. I think when you think about areas like blockchain and DLT, you know, the application of that to settlements, I think, has been fairly clearly articulated and defined and well understood uh, in terms of how it can revolutionize a settlement process for everything from property to stock trading. Uh, but if you think of it in terms of data and the ability of regulators to have data that has integrity to it and accuracy to it and real-time access, you know, so many of our registrants spend such a great deal of resources pushing data to us yeah. at a great cost to them and also potentially a great risk mm-hmm. uh, in terms of its well, ability they get to get it wrong, right? So let's say they get to the end of the day and they think this is where they've got to, have, having spent a lot of money, but they can't see what's in all of their counterparties' databases. They, they just don't know. So they're kind of reliant on a message or a fax in some cases that they've been sent being true and then sending that to you. But then as a regulator, you're getting faxes and emails and spreadsheets and countless different sources of data and you're trying to figure out during all of this what is the truth and this is one of the key challenges of the financial crisis is people just didn't know what was going on and and that can cause fear and panic so uh, there was a piece that the fca did in the united kingdom shout out to the fca uh with a couple of banks in the uk looking at mortgages how do you report mortgage state between multiple banks on dlt and and would that make life easier for a regulator? You think? Well, sure. And I think I think trans, I think you were absolutely right. Transparency was at the core of the financial crisis because a lack of transparency is what causes a panic, and a panic is exactly what we saw that turned a financial downturn into a financial crisis. So the ability of DLT to address that panic, to provide that transparency, I think is going to be key. And really, a lot of that involves credit risk. You know, the ability of a counterparty to uh, to complete a trade, to um, finalize its commitment. And if DLT can provide clarity into the ability, into that credit risk, I think you're going to see a, a sea change in terms of the transparency. When you speak to your colleagues across the financial services industry, both on the buy and sell side, do you hear at the most senior levels real excitement for this? Or do you think it feels far away? Is it something that's uh, blockchain and DLT? Is it really coming to financial markets? It is coming to financial markets. I think there is a an excitement, but also an awareness of how much work it's going to take. Uh, you think about smart contracts, right? creating a digital version of a interest rate swap, you know, that, that typically takes hundreds of pages of documentation. Um, in order to make that into a digital contract, you have to define the terms and create digital terms that a smart contract can use to eventually value itself and require payments back and forth. Just that process of digitizing terms is a very large undertaking and is something that uh, the industry is working very hard on and I think is, is rolling out as we speak, but it's the first step of many in the process. So uh, I spoke to Scott O'Malia at ISDA recently right. and he was talking about their, uh, their piece of work there to look at doing exactly that, the common domain model. That's exactly what I was referring to, yes. And so the common domain model is this interesting idea that we all in financial services do more or less the same thing, but we repeat each other everywhere 
and we don't necessarily get to the same outcome. So then we send the regulator different versions of the truth and we all hold a different version of the truth and nobody knows what the truth actually is. Whereas actually, why does everybody have to do everything? Why can't they just do their bit of the puzzle and then hand off to the next person and the next person? Well, it's always been hard to do that because the obvious answer is to centralize that. But if you were to centralize that as a financial institution, then you've just created the world's biggest bank or the world's biggest financial institution that's too big to fail that makes Lehman just look tiny. So this kind of fragmented nature of the market means that you kind of have to have that. So what do you think happens next? Do you think that we're going to see things like you're seeing in the algo markets, things like uh, you're seeing with, with blockchain and DLT, is this going to become more and more of a reality in the next one, two, three years? And what can the CFTC do to support and encourage that? Well, I think I think we need to understand the potential for blockchain, and I think we're doing that. I think that there are already advancements that have been made in the settlement process. Um, the DTCC is one of our largest trade repositories, and they are actively moving to a DLT settlement process. Um, and you know, I think that. A, a, a lot of the the steps that need to be taken require cooperation and coordination and a lot of dialogue so that where everyone's on the same page, everyone plays their role. I think is this common domain model is a great step in that process. And, you know, it, it may not be good for lawyers because there's going to be a lot of certainty around a lot of issues that I think maybe have been more subjective. Uh, but I think objectiveness and certainty are better for markets. I think as a whole for taking cost out of the industry, which is definitely the focus right now, there's, there's a short-term benefit in ambiguity because I, can, I might be able to win this one. But actually net overall just creates cost for the industry and cost right now is such a, such a giant focus. Yeah, I think if you, if you look at markets, they tend to move where regulation isn't the most or the least. It's where it's the best and it's the most certain and it's where it's uh, less involved in a political-based process. It's easier to do business and I can just get on with the business of doing business rather than the business of figuring out how to do business, which is creating an industry. Uh, so I'm seeing a bit of a, a barbell in um, blockchain and DLT from the sort of institutional side where it's, it's very much about how do we take what we've got today and make it better, more efficient, and more transparent. And then this emerging world of crypto assets, which is kind of the Wild West. It's unregulated to, in many people's opinions, but the uh, but there are others like yourselves, the CFTC, who've said actually Bitcoin looks a lot like a commodity. How are you viewing this space? I know the the CFTC's made a number of uh, statements in it and being pretty pretty advanced, I think, in its in its thinking. And what is your view on on how that market's evolving? Because it, it certainly uh, carries some risks with it. Well, I th I think that this market evolved in the absence of a regulatory jurisdiction and of concrete regulations. And I think that may have been what allowed it to flourish to the degree that it did, but now it's appropriate for us to come in and um, provide some regulation, some oversight, some, uh, some integrity to the trading and the uh, safety and security of these markets. And the CFTC did classify Bitcoin and digital currencies, virtual currencies as commodities back in 2015, I believe. And we are now in the process of reviewing futures contracts on Bitcoin. 
Well, I saw that um, Ledger X actually had a contract that was granted to clear and settle derivatives for digital currencies. That's pretty big. Uh, and so I'm guessing that wasn't an easy process for them. They had to do their homework and there were some hard yards being done. How do, how do you see other companies like that engaging with you? And is that a path people should be following? Is there, And what's the front door to the CFTC if they wish to do that? Well, t- two of our big exchanges and clearinghouses, the uh, CME and SIBO, are both looking at futures contracts for Bitcoin and have submitted documentation to us uh, in a self-certification process. What that means is that they, as registered entities with us, certify that these contracts obey our laws and our regulations already, and we review them to make sure that they do. And once that process concludes, they can start trading. Um, However, once that happens, we have oversight over those contracts. They, the exchanges and the clearinghouses, have to have an oversight process over the uh, markets that combine into an index that may cash settle on them so that there could be, I think and will be, uh, a much more robust regulatory oversight process over the trading of Bitcoin itself. Which, as we're seeing all-time highs and touching $10,000 as we record this, uh, couldn't couldn't be better timed, uh, in my personal opinion. So what happens next for the CFTC? What are your next couple of years going to look like? Do you think we're going to see um, more of this sort of thing? Do you think we're going to see... And what are your key focus areas for the next couple of years? Yeah, I think... I, well, there's a lot to do. I think from a technology aspect, I think... Um, us staying on top of DLT, ensuring that it's being well used in the marketplace, seeing how we can use it as regulators, I think is going to be a major focus. The modern trading environment is something in which I'm very interested. Cybersecurity is a very, very significant challenge uh, to the marketplace. And what we have found is that a lot of our registrants that send us data, doesn't, they don't have a comfortability with how we handle their data. Mm-hmm. Mostly out of ignorance. We, we don't have a good vehicle of communication to them to tell them what we do with it when we have it and what, how we dispose of it when we don't need it. So I think from a technology aspect, there's some good work to do. Beyond that, I think we need to take an, another look at our rules around swaps. The Dodd-Frank Act in the United States gave the CFTC jurisdiction over the swaps market, over interest rate swaps, credit default swaps, foreign exchange swaps, and others. And... The CFTC issued a lot of rules in a very short period of time to meet those goals and to meet those demands, and in my view, took a very uh, prescriptive approach that I think we need to revisit. And while some jurisdictions may have followed our approach, I think we all need to be open to going back and seeing if we did those in the right way. Balance is always hard with these things, isn't it? And the uh, journey of getting that right is, is is exactly that. It's a journey. But actually, there is a tendency in, in my observation that once a rule is set to not go back and challenge that. I find it interesting that you talked about uh, removing the need for fax machines and that sometimes it's what you take out that can make more of a difference. But uh, doing it, almost like it's Jenga you're, t- you're doing it without affecting the uh, security of the of the the whole tower right you got to make sure it still works that's right it's almost counterintuitive that that if you want to encourage technology and place it into your rule set it may be there much too long and actually inhibit innovation uh, in a, uh, over the time period that, uh, that that goes beyond when you may seek to readdress it 
So I was at a RegTech conference recently, RegTech Rising here in the UK, and uh, RegTech is a term that's becoming quite popular. Have you seen any developments like that come through Lab 2.0? And, and would you see that startups or new suppliers, new vendors could be coming and talking to the regulator directly as maybe a customer or maybe somebody that they can partner with and learn from? Well, that's certainly our interest and our intent in creating Lab CFTC, you know, um, the FCA has a great process here with its sandbox and talking to uh, innovators and fintech innovators and reg tech innovators. Um, I think there's more work to be done there. I think we have a different type of process than the FCA does. While our rules don't necessarily allow us to use and demo technology for free because we have to pay for an appropriate use, we do have uh, flexibility around the regulations which innovators have to follow by allowing them uh, to innovate without us potentially taking action against them to give them a little more comfort and security. So I think that there's a lot of potential there, but I think the conversations are just getting started. Wow, early days. Well, I, I certainly wish these types of activities well. Um, before I let you go, I've got to ask you a, a couple of bits and pieces. Uh, first and foremost, where do people find out more? Ah, well, you know, uh, the internet's a great thing. Um, uh, the CFTC website uh, has a lot of information about what our organization does, the rules that we implement, the rules we're voting on, comments from the public as to the rule sets, um, my views as a commissioner, all of our commissioners' views and speeches, uh, the, uh, the oversight process of Congress is well documented on the Hill. So uh, use all those resources to the uh, best of your interest. And, and what advice would you give to somebody that's looking to come and talk to the CFTC or just looking to do something in financial services generally? Well, I think from the CFTC, uh, we, we are very open and want to have a willingness to be able to meet with folks. We're, we're very oversubscribed mm -hmm. in terms of that, that interest from the outside, but that doesn't, don't let that discourage you. Um, we're trying to be as, uh, as open and as available as we can, so be patient with us as we build this out, uh, and we want to hear about what everyone's doing, and we want to uh, take on new ways and have a new thought process around how we engage with technology. I've always been uh, surprised by this. When in my early career, people always told me meetings with regulators were a no upside meeting, you, that your best case was to come out exactly where you were, and your worst case was you've lost your livelihood and career and you're in prison. And actually, <laughs> I, I, I think that meme still exists, and it's quite sad because I've, I've enjoyed this meeting. I enjoy every meeting I have because I find that it, the position you find yourselves in in a regulator is one where you can try and make a real difference, but you need people to engage with you to, to make that make sense, and I hope people do. Well, we want we want to have a process where people feel empowered to innovate mm -hmm. and, and not scared of innovating. Awesome. And that starts with a good dialogue up front, which is what this whole Lab CFTC effort's about. Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you, Simon. It's great to be with you. Uh, all right, so that's all for the news this week. Don't forget, you can let us know what you think about any of the stories we've covered on Twitter at BeChain Insider and share your thoughts or get in touch with at Colin G. Platt, who has been starting the campaign to change his Twitter handle to GSAT. Um, if you just want to get involved with that campaign or get in touch with Colin at Colin G. Platt or myself at S.Y. Taylor, if you want to pick up with us personally. Um, 11FS, the company that brings you this podcast or a challenger agency who help banks, anybody in the investment industry, well, managers with a challenge in blockchain deal with those challenges get something live um, and do blockchain projects uh, drop us a line at hello11fs.com or hit us up at 11fs.com if you want to learn more that's all for this week 
thanks to all of my guests. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Those reviews help us so much. And spread the word. Tell all your friends and colleagues too. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. <laughs>